Welcome to Roadhouse Minute, the podcast where we review the best bad movie of all time, Roadhouse, and where we always try to be nice until it's time not to be nice. I'm Roger. I'm Marcy. And this is another in our ongoing series of special episodes in the Roadhouse Cinematic Universe. Uh, on this episode, we are going to be talking about the 1990 romantic fantasy, according to the IMDb, Ghost. Uh, and uh, we could think of no better guests to have than two of our favorite guests from the movie proper, uh, the second uh, married couple in a row to grace this podcast, uh, Julia and Rick Ingham from the Mad Max Minute. Julia, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. So happy to be here. So happy to get to talk about this movie. Mm -hmm. We're happy too. And Rick, how are you doing? I'm feeling great. We recently, and I mean, like just before jumping on here, rewatched this movie. So it is fresh in our minds. Yes. Well, you awesome. know, it's, it's fresh in our minds too, because as I just mentioned to you before we started recording, up until last Thursday, uh, I had never seen this movie. Uh, and I remember, so the reason why we had you all on here, so the, when, when we were last talking, uh, we were settling an argument, I think, in the x-ray room. And I remember when we were doing our Roadhouse Minutes, somehow the conversation turned to ghosts. I think maybe you were dropping some some hot, maybe Rick Avila's notes or something like that. Do you remember how we ended up talking about this movie? Uh, do I remember any sort of context? Absolutely not. But I do know that any opportunity we can to bring up how Rick Aviles was both the Gatesman in Waterworld and Willie Lopez in this movie, like we're going to take that opportunity. That must that must have been it. I think we were talking about your Waterworld project. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna go through. We're gonna talk about the movie proper. We've got some other kind of fun segments about Ghost that will connect it back to Roadhouse. Uh, but as is Marcy, as is our tradition now. Well, it's a it's a two episode uh, long tradition. But we like to begin these special episodes with the IMDb summary of our movie, which is so accurate and on the nose. So here you go, Mars. Uh, after a young man is murdered, murdered, his spirit stays behind to warn his lover of impending danger with the help of a reluctant psychic. Wow. All right. Where, yeah. Where should we all begin? <laughs> I just uh, want to know, just to kind of get us all on the same page. I want to know if you all like this movie, if it holds like a, tender place in your heart or if you dislike it with a passion marcy those are two pretty narrow pages to get on <laughs> i just i want to know how about just hearing from our guests kind of what their general feeling is about ghost i like this movie um it came out when i was what like 10 years old nine years old i was nine when this movie came out so i don't think i watched it right when it came out I think I was a little young for it, but I definitely watched it as a teenager. So it holds memories for me, but I'm not sure that it holds like a special place in my nostalgic heart, but it is a good movie. I enjoy you? it. How about you, Rick? Oh, I am pro ghost. Like <laughs> if there's a, a pro or, or an anti group, I am pro ghost wholeheartedly. What about you, Marcy? I don't think I like this movie very much. <laughs> I just I get a vibe from it that's just like, mm, no, I don't like it. Well, I will try as your host. I think I'm a little bit more on Marcy's side of the fence about this movie. Like I said, I'd never seen it until I was in my mid-40s. And so maybe I'm looking at it through 2022 colored glasses. Um, it surprised me in a lot of different ways. And so I have many questions. My first question being, like, do we feel like this is a... How romantic do we think the movie Ghost is? Oh, that's kind of a tough question because there are romantic scenes, which is what makes this movie particularly famous, is it's particularly romantic scenes. Uh, but it's more like, you know, you know, you get anti-heroes. Much of this movie is anti-romance because it's it's mostly about a couple who are very, very much in love that are ripped apart from each other. So you get this like 
this tease of romance and then it's cut short and that is heartbreaking you know the fact that there's so much this is going to sound weird but the fact that there's so much teasing involved in this movie is i think what makes it the perfect romantic film because it's not the consummation that's the big part it's the anticipation it's the the distant longing it's very harlequin like you could imagine that aside from making the poster like two soft focus images of well no, it's it's one image but like the poster is swayze and more and they're all like soft focus very ghostly with the title of the movie you could make it a full-on harlequin style novel with you know swayze with his shirt open on a highland hill and her draped across his lap like it's that type of romance yeah see it's funny you should bring that up because i feel like this movie when, this movie when i watched it i found to be very surprising it was not the movie that i expected at all right and and like for example when you take the cover of the movie when you take the box art um it seemed to me like a movie where these two people, you know, had been ripped apart. I get the fact that Patrick Swayze is going to become a ghost. I didn't realize that it was going to take us literally into the end of the movie for them to be able to make physical contact with each other again. Uh, in my mind, I actually had totally misplaced, like, the pottery scene. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say both of the scenes in this movie that are supposed to be super romantic— I did not find that romantic. Marcy, what do you think? Is How romantic did you find the movie Ghost? Um, I also didn't find it particularly romantic. And I think part of me, like, especially in the last scene where Whoopi Goldberg is the person that is interacting with Demi Moore and we're seeing her as Patrick Swayze, I felt like really weird about like I don't know it was kind of like this situation where I thought um you know what they chose to show us wasn't reality right and uh, it was just all mixed up in a weird way for me um I also like I don't think I saw this movie when I was younger I have no recollection of it and so I also had some assumptions about who the dead people were and <laughs> uh, <laughs> they weren't correct. And also that pottery scene, I thought my whole life, oh, that's, you know, like Demi Moore with a dead person or Demi Moore is a dead person. I don't know. And so actually seeing it was a lot different. It was weird. Yeah. See what I thought about the pottery scene, which, you know, and again, sorry, I guess we should, I should have said up front, we're going to spoil the hell out of this movie. So if you haven't seen the movie Ghost, you should go watch it because all spoiler warnings are off at this point. In my mind, I always thought that the pottery scene was the scene where somehow Patrick Swayze was able to like pierce the veil of his ghostliness and somehow like be able to reestablish his physical connection with Demi Moore. Like I thought that movie happened after they were dead. I didn't realize that it was just sort of like some, I don't know, harmless flirtation in the middle of the night because she's an insomniac artist. That wasn't flirtation. That was foreplay for them. Like they were foreplaying in the mud of the pottery mm, and then somehow got cleaned up. I don't know. They took a break to scrub their arms down and then they got a little bit more heavy into it. I kind of wish they had shown that because that's way more realistic. Like if you're getting things going and there's a mess you need to stop clean up that mess and then you can continue on that's real life yeah i have a it's feeling not, it's not as sexy as they make it look it could also have something to do with the fact that uh, and this is no cassie knows versions on the four of us they're quite young and not married yet i think we would be <laughs> like oh you know let's let's not make a mess uh, whereas I, I think in their artist studio, they're just going to go for it. Um, when you were reading the summary for this movie on IMDb, and it says that after a young man is murdered, I don't know how old uh, Sam Wheat is supposed to be because that's how the yeah. priest pronounced it. Wheat with the with the H there. But um, 
like Swayze was 38 years old. And if that qualifies as young, then I'm feeling pretty good about that. Yeah, but I'm how, not sure old, Patrick how old Swayze do you think he was ever young? How old do you think that Sam Wheat is? I would say he's probably in his late 20s, early 30s. I was thinking 35. Yeah, between maybe like 32, 33. That general range, he does seem to be, you know, career-wise, an up-and-comer, but not fresh off the boat. He has a position of authority, of great responsibility and authority. The place that they are able to buy together is insane. Mm. Yeah, it's it's part of the great pantheon of movies and TV shows set in New York, where the <laughs> yeah. place where they live would realistically cost about 10 times as much as they can actually afford. I think you can... You know, see also the apartments and friends and things like that. Yeah. Don't you think, though, that this was at a time when the beginning of renovating, especially an old loft like that, was just at the start, right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, like they're getting in on the ground floor of something that turns into like a multi million dollar place. And they're starting from the bare bones of it. And yeah, there's there's no way that neighborhood had been gentrified yet. This is no, an, no, oh, it yeah, looks like a dump. Yeah, so I, we we should talk I was about just that in, too. And I was just in New York City recently, and it was like nice everywhere. It doesn't look like there's rubble on the sidewalk. You know, that was weird. Yeah, this movie is also coming in that period where pretty much every movie set in New York just portrays it as like a hell. <laughs> yeah um, yeah but yeah let's... putting this movie in the 90s like new york in the 80s was that was the rough time right yeah yeah Not murder capital of the world history. type of thing it's a yeah. scary place it's gotham city um well tell you what what are some of, so rick you, you are you're definitely have put yourself in the pro ghost camp tell us mm -hmm. some of the things that you really like about ghost all right well uh, I'll say I am pro ghost, but I am also, you know, aware of the ridiculous elements of this movie. Uh, I'll say that up front. So as we're listening, if I start sounding like I'm ragging on the movie, I'm doing it well-intentionedly. Anyway, uh, things I love about this movie, uh, Patrick Swayze in general. Um, I, I think Whoopi Goldberg also does a great performance um especially her insistence on responding to everything that sam says so that everybody clearly sees her as a crazy person um i love the reactions of the extras around the mains whenever uh they're trying to accomplish some sort of goal everybody just looks at Whoopi, and by extension pat uh patrick as if they're just two insane people. I love that. Uh, the reaction of the nuns when they get donated the money is classic. Um, I think um, Carl is just the greasiest villain that I love to hate. And I get a kick out of seeing Rick Avilas just be his little attack dog. And <laughs> the fact that they both get their comeuppance, it's like, yeah, that's really satisfying to see them. Uh, get their end goal and of course the pottery scene has become so iconic that it's always fun to have seen this movie so that way when it pops up elsewhere in pop culture i can say ah yes i recognize that i'm in the know just like, like the writers i feel like the pottery scene became iconic and then it it sort of i i feel like i only know it now in parody like it became so entrenched in pop culture that really the only way you would ever see it come up again is like in like in the Naked Gun movie, for example, where they just turned it into like something ridiculous and something mm -hmm. like that. Julia, what are some of the things that you like best about Ghost? I think one of my absolute hand down, hands down favorite things is the comic timing of Whoopi Goldberg. Otome Brown is just phenomenal. She's so funny and really lightens up a very serious sad sad movie so i think that was brilliant to kind of elevate this movie from just the depths of despair that I, I think it really could have fallen into i like that there is an element of mystery that we are along with sam as he's figuring things out and we experience the the helplessness that we as viewers often feel with movies. You know, there's the, the classic meme of, you know, yelling at the screen so the girl don't go down in the basement, that's where the monster is. 
we're doing that here. We know who we learn who the monster is. We're yelling at the screen just like Sam is. So we really like feel his point of view of having information that we cannot impart upon the people who are in trouble. I love that. I think it's really clever and done in a time when I don't think that's what they were trying to do. That sentiment about yelling at the screen, you know, for at stupid characters doing stupid things uh, does feel uh, relatively modern. Maybe not. Uh, but I don't think that's what they were going for, but they kind of landed on it anyways. And like Rick said, Patrick Swayze, he's just a gem. Mm-hmm. He's so sweet. He's so he's such a good emotional actor. And you can you can see how much he loves her and how like worried and wanting to put in this effort for her, for crud. What's her name? Molly. Molly. And he's just really good at a part imparting that, as yeah. well as being, you know, very sexy and talented. He's also loving and caring. Yeah. It's also fun to watch him work his way through a problem that he can neither dance nor roundhouse kick his way out of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I mean, it's, this this movie comes, if we want to sort of, obviously Patrick Swayze is our connective tissue here to Roadhouse. And uh, there's a there's sort of a, a funny piece of trivia that uh, I don't know if I mentioned the last time uh, we were on together that Roadhouse is essentially responsible for this movie. Um, according to, you know, widely regarded uh, trivia about this movie, the reason why Patrick Swayze, decided, you know, because Patrick Swayze is coming out of Roadhouse, he's all set to become the next great action star and I think in his, you know, apocalyptic final fight with Jimmy in Roadhouse, he messed up his knee really bad. And so the story goes that essentially he said to his agent, like, I can't, you know, I can't do another action movie right now. You got to find me something a little bit, uh, a little bit calmer. Uh, and that movie was Ghost. So if it, if it weren't for Roadhouse, Ghost would not exist. Uh, Marcy, what do you think about Patrick Swayze and Ghost? Oh, I think he's great as always. You know, he's um, just like Julia was saying, he's got a very sweet nature to him. Um, I think he's got a lot of facial expressions in this movie that really convey a lot of the feelings that he's having. Um, You know, I think as a, like the character is going on this journey of like realization as to the position that he's in and then being able to kind of troubleshoot how he can be helpful, even though he's dead. Um, You know, he turns himself from a very helpless character into somebody that um, has some powers and can kind of like even fight back, which I think, um, you know, I don't know a lot about ghosts, but that's the, <laughs> that's the polter, poltergeist, right? Where they're able to do things and, like, move objects and stuff like that. So, but he's, like, fighting against um, the bad guys. Yeah. And let's, before we get to, yeah, I'm sure we should talk a little bit about Vincent Scavelli and that whole part of the movie, because I think that is one of my favorite parts of the movie, where he learns, like, how he can actually use his powers. Um, but just in terms of of Whoopi Goldberg, um, yeah, her, her performance in this movie, the other fun fact about um, Ghost is that she was not she was not really anybody's choice to be in this movie. I don't think anybody was taking her really that seriously as an actor at this point. Um, And apparently Patrick Swayze just went to the barricades and said like, you know, I'm not going to be in this movie unless you put her in this movie too, which is pretty great because, you know, this is, this is a fourth of her EGOT. Oh, she won for this one. She did. This is one of her two Academy Award nominations. Wow. Oh, I did not know that. That's interesting. I know her so well from Sister Act and Sister Act 2. I mean, those were movies that were on repeat in my house when I was young. I, and I think you can draw a straight line probably from this movie to that movie as well. Looking in the trivia section for this movie, uh, there's also a bit of a Beyond Thunderdome link between uh, with uh, involving the role of Oda May, because according to the trivia here, 
uh, Tina Turner also went out for this role. Hmm. hmm. Tina Turner. Yeah. How would we have enjoyed Tina Turner as Oda Mae Brown? I think it would have been a different character. It would have been a very different yeah. character. It would have been a very different movie. So funny. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm I'm not sure I see a lot of chemistry between Tina Turner and Patrick Swayze. Mm-hmm. I yeah, don't think Tina this Turner <laughs> she she takes her acting very seriously. Like when she was on the set of Beyond Thunderdome, she was shadowing George Miller pretty much the entire time trying to learn everything she could. And while she did have some some very lighthearted elements to that movie, like Tina Turner doesn't mess around like Whoopi Goldberg, I'm sure does. Yeah, she's got a much harsher look to her, too. Like, Mm -hmm. Whoopi Goldberg at least has this giant, friendly smile, and you can tell that she, you know, with the sisters, comes from a very loving place. I don't know. Tina Turner feels very edgy to me. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't think this movie works at all unless it is grounded in humor. I mean, if anything, for me, Ghost is sort of a, it's a, it's a dramatic comedy or like, I think, I think the best parts of ghost are the funny parts. I think when it starts to turn into kind of like a action movie at the end, um, or even like the super romantic parts are not the parts that resonate as much for me. Now, since we're on the subject of alternative casting, would you like to hear some of the other names that were considered for the role of Sam and Molly? Sure. Yeah. So, other actresses that went out for the role of Molly include Michelle Pfeiffer, Molly Ringwald, Meg Ryan, Julia Roberts, and Nicole Kidman. I heard that they were very close to getting Nicole Kidman, um, but essentially nobody knew who she was at the time. <laughs> um, so they needed to cast somebody with a little bit more name recognition. But I also heard that Nicole Kidman's audition for this movie was what caught the eye of the people in Hollywood and directly led to her getting cast in days of thunder which is essentially how her mainstream hollywood career begins isn't nicole kidman like at least six feet tall too and so like her with with patrick swayze would have been a height difference in the opposite direction uh maybe you just think she's that tall because she stands you see her standing next to tom cruise a lot so nicole kidman is five foot ten and a half inches. That's yeah. exactly crazy. Was five foot ten. They would have been perfect. Oh. Hmm. So she would not have been able to wear heels without Patrick Swayze standing on a box. Yeah. You know, to it's me, interesting. Or being five foot five worked out very well for those right. two. Yeah. The one thing we haven't really talked about so far is Demi Moore. How do you all feel about Demi Demi Moore's performance in Ghost? Julia, what do you think about Demi Moore? as molly i think her performance overall is fine i have neither incredible praise nor criticism for it i think it's fine it's what it needed to be got the job done what i will give her praise for is her crying Mm -hmm. (laughs) because i know when i cry i get all snotty and my face turns red my eyes turn red like it's not pretty but she a couple times in the movie tears falling down her face and the rest of her face was fine she was still like very presentable she can cry without ugly crying and that was great because if she was ugly crying then i would feel awkward instead of getting to enjoy the moment it really bothered me that she did not wipe those tears away that yeah, they she were like them fall. going into her nose crease and mm, it needed some tending yeah she's, just a she's, little just a little wipe She's a very serious actor. She sort of went to like the Tina Turner school of acting. I don't. I can't think of a movie. Can any of you think of a movie where Demi Moore plays funny? Ooh. Well, hmm. she was in one of the new Charlie's Angels, but I don't think she was really playing funny. I think she was really there to be an action-y villain. Since we seem to be mining uh, the trivia section of IMDb a lot tonight, and since you brought it up, Julia, apparently one of the big selling points for Demi Moore in her auctions was that she could cry out of either eye on cue. <laughs> oh, that either is eye talent, either I, eye. Like she could. That's pick. amazing. I don't know. That's that's very weird. <laughs> that's What's some interesting verbiage. Amazing oh. control. 
She's she was in GI Jane and a few good men. These are all kind of hard. Yeah, you know, neither of those mm-hmm. are. You're not like going to be a comedian there. <laughs> she's very serious. She's kind of like she went to like the same acting school as Keanu Reeves. It's yeah, like only serious. Yeah, but she's smoother than Keanu is. Well, she's a she's a better actor than Keanu. Reeves. Yeah. I didn't mean to put them on the same level. I just mean <laughs> they seem to only really be able to play one tone. Mm. I really thought that she looked well in the part, like her little cute haircut, and you know she kind of had this artsy vibe to her. Um, you know, so I think in that respect, like I thought her look was really good for it. Apparently that look was a big surprise. Like I think she just like showed up to set after she had been cast. She just like showed up to set having chopped off all of her hair. And the director was like, oh, okay. I guess this is what we're doing now. Was she the woman that posed um, naked, but painted in for something? Not painted. She was just naked on, was it Vanity Fair when she was pregnant or something like that? Yes. That was her, uh, you know, from basically as as low down as you could go up, holding her very pregnant belly. I just put the wrong thing in the Google search. Demi more <laughs> naked is not what I want to do. <laughs> That's it's, it's your search history now. Yeah, um, right. I mean, we've got some other things to talk about. Uh, certainly about the movie, we're going to talk a little bit more about the music and things yeah. later on. Um, yeah. Can and, I branch uh, off of? Uh, can I branch off of uh, Demi more real quick though? Sure. Um, going back to the alternative actors, one of the actors considered for the role of Sam was actually Demi Moore's second husband, Bruce Willis. And he uh, he didn't understand the script, and he turned it down, and he later called himself a knucklehead for not doing the movie. So he was like, oh, i got to find me a movie where I get to play a ghost. Okay, I'll just keep looking. Eventually, I'll find it. Right. Um, but huh. also... Bruce Willis. Other alternatives: uh, Tom Cruise, Alec Baldwin, Kevin Klein, Kevin Bacon, Tom Hanks, Paul Hogan, Michael J. Fox, and Harrison Ford. Which means that in an alternative universe, uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman star opposite each other in Ghost instead of in Eyes Wide Shut, <laughs> <laughs> and instead of Days of Thunder. Right. Yeah. This is where they get together. Um, I'm not I- sure I can see anybody else, but. Patrick Swayze in this role. I can't either. I mean, I think I think the best quality of Patrick Swayze you can say in all of his performances is his earnestness. Um, and I feel like that's what you need in a character like this. I mean, I like what, um, you know, Rick, I think it was you who said this, that he's like, he wants so badly to try to help. And this whole movie is about him essentially being sort of powerless. Yes. Um, I definitely can't see Michael J. Fox in this role and be like, Doc, are you telling me that I'm a ghost? <laughs> no. No. You know. No, I mean, it had to be somebody serious because they're going to be partnered with Whoopi Goldberg for most of the movie. Yeah. Um, like, you can't put a hat on a hat. I don't think you could do, like, a funny person <laughs> with another funny person. <laughs> oh, they should have cast Harrison Ford as the train ghost because then he could have grabbed Swayze and be like, get off my train, and then just push him out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That train ghost that dude is like so crazy looking. I'm oh, absolutely awesome. Absolutely, he's is. genuinely scary. Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a really. I mean, most of his other roles though, he's like the sweetest guy. Vincent Scavelli is his name. Um, and I I I I feel like he's he in the in the in the parlance of uh, Bill Simmons' podcast, the Rewatchables. He's like the ultimate that guy. Like when you see him, like, oh, it's that guy. They do their um, bottle cap movement training on the 42nd Street subway platform. And that's like right at Times Square. And the place looks like a hellhole. And well, Times Square is still pretty much a hellhole. Well, it's a different kind of hellhole now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Not like you're going to get tetanus from the tiles on the subway line anymore. I was kind of amazed at how um, unoccupied the subway station was. Oh, yeah. Was. Yeah. I, we've spent time in New York and in the subways, and I don't think we've ever been alone or walked into an previously empty station. Yeah. Yeah. 
Like, even when you go out into the outer boroughs, there are always a ton of people. There's always people. Yep. Do you have, it was the 90s. It was 30 years ago. So Yeah. <laughs> Do you all have any thoughts about our, our main villain, Tony Goldwyn? I did uh, not recognize him for the longest time until Marcy pointed out that he's the president in Scandal. He's gone on to do quite a bit, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. He's he's done a lot of things. Like, he's no Demi Moore or Patrick Swayze, but he's still, like, a pretty great actor. I really liked him in the role, and I liked that he um, was so... Like, you could tell there was something off with him from the beginning. Of course, you know that, right? But he just, like, had these layers of sleaziness that just kept getting, like, broken open like an onion. Like, all of a sudden, he has this this moment where he's spilling coffee on his shirt. <laughs> oh, and then he's, maybe the most he's got to un- take it off. That is like, the most uncomfortable scene in the movie. It was so gross. Really gross. And then he's sidling up to her, and you're like, dude, like, how long has this man been dead? Really? It, it feels like it's only been, what, two, three days? Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's freshly dead and you're you're like half naked with his girl. I don't like it at all. It's really gross. I got really weird vibes from him from the opening scene of the movie where he's just the third wheel helping to demolish this apartment. And it's like, why is he there? I don't know. Okay, in defense of the third wheel, when you have a third wheel, you don't stop. And make out with your partner. Oh, yeah. That was a little something, too. Yeah, that was awkward for him, but it wasn't his fault. Yeah. It was Molly's fault. Um, Well, they're they're a young couple in love. They are. Something I loved about his characterization is that as the movie went on and as he got more and more stressed about his own impending doom, he got sweatier and sweatier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which leads us up to, I I think, the part of the movie that probably needs the most work, which is sort of the very end. Uh, I guess it's worth pointing out that like three years from now, Jurassic Park is going to come out. Uh, Because one of the things that Marcy and I were saying to each other when we were watching our movie is like, Wow, these special effects. Um, <laughs> and especially the part with the the ghosts that drag you to hell. They were terrible. We wanted more. They could have been scarier. They oh, could the have sound, been. The sound design for them, though, was really good. The, I did the, like the sound. The design. sound of the ghosts, the sound of the evil ghosts and ghosts, apparently is the sound of a baby crying played backwards. Well, that just makes it even more horrifying. Yeah. Creepy. These things really reminded me of a cartoon that I used to watch when I was a kid where it was like, you know, this black shadowy stuff that was going away from somebody. It just seems so like weirdly fake. And I know like how else are you going to like make demons? But, you know, they, they also like, pulled the person backwards and it just seems so awkward it was the same effect every time it was like we drag the person from the foreground as far back as possible until we can't really see them anymore and then they disappear and i think you know you combine that with the scene at the very end where i guess patrick swayze goes to heaven Mm. Uh, like those those two parts together were special effects that could have been better Mm. yeah do you think they could have been better in 1990? Well, that's the question. Yeah. Um, maybe not. So I guess I have to just remind myself of that when I'm watching the movie. But as you pointed out, this was only a few years before Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. You said that you suppose he goes to heaven. Um, before we sat down and hit record, Julie and I were talking in the kitchen. Um, now, Willie Lopez and Carl Bruner, they get dragged down to we suppose hell by the the black demon things because they were you know the ones who orchestrated sam's murder and you know they were greedy and thieves and things like that but um julia you pointed out that sam wasn't completely blameless no uh, we know very little about sam's life before he died 
but he seemed like a good guy and i wouldn't really question going to heaven yeah he seems like a, a decent enough person fine go to heaven but he doesn't go to heaven. He stays. And the time between when he doesn't go to heaven and when he does go to heaven, he did some pretty bad things. He stole money that was intended to orchestrate somebody's murder. Two people's murder. Hmm. And I'm like, does he really still deserve to go to heaven? I'm not so sure yeah, about and, that. And the actions that he took over the course of this movie like pretty much put the hand on the scale that resulted in two more people dying. Like he chased Willie out into the street where he got hit by the cars. Now, granted Sam didn't kill Willie, but Sam put Willie in the situation where he died. Likewise, he didn't kill Carl, but you know, Sam's actions put Carl underneath that broken window. What? Mm. Rick, are you are you laying blame for Carl getting his 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 windowectomy on Yeah, I'm I'm saying that if Sam, Sam had not intervened. Yeah. If Sam hadn't intervened, Molly and Odome Brown would be dead. Yeah. But Sam wouldn't have killed them. <laughs> yeah, wow. it's really it's it's hard to lay uh it's hard to lay moral an ethical blame for those two actual murders at Sam's feet because technically they were accidents. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> he did put them in the positions to have those accidents. And I think he, he intended was... for the 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 mob boss or drug dealer or whoever that $4 million actually belonged to. He intended for them to die by the hand of the owner of the $4 million. Yeah. I mean, do we just assume that the reason why he stays behind is because of Molly? Like that's, that's why he's stuck here because he needs to protect her. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, we get the other old guy at, the hospital who was also kind of in this purgatory and he was waiting for his wife to die. Right. I thought that was the sweetest thing Yeah, that he was just this old man ghost hanging around in the hospital because he wants to be there when his wife dies. Yeah. And he doesn't want to be without her. Like it's not heaven if she's not there too. Yeah. Yeah. It's very sweet. So sad. (laughs) And then there's the other guy, right. That just (laughs) dies on the gurney and he goes straight to heaven. No, it's not like automatic purgatory, right? So, yeah, there's a whole variety of things that could happen. I think, you know, even in death, there's a, a certain level of free will, I guess, if you've earned it. Because mm. the the two individuals that we see get pulled down by demons, they don't get any kind of choice. You know, if they felt like they had unfinished business or they were waiting for somebody would they have been able to resist the darkness the same way that sam and the old man in the emergency room resisted the light so they could stay behind and do their thing i doubt it Hmm. so the only people who get any free will are good people Hmm. i don't understand why doors were such an issue for the (laughs) old man ghost dude who was saying that you get used to the doors they take a little but you could just walk through the damn thing right like don't take it so slow no don't go slow and then all of a sudden like not a few scenes later or maybe it was half a movie i can't remember like patrick swayze's got his head inside a moving train like looking around for the boulder guys i'm like yeah doors are not a problem nor are trains (laughs) Yeah. The first time we see Sam deal with a door, he's doing it slow because he's been warned that they're something. And so he's cautious. So he does it super duper slow. And we see that his skin starts to take on the color of the door. So is he starting to morph into the door? That is scary. But then if you just go through it, that doesn't happen. 
it's a it's a weird scene. It kind of feels like they at one point thought that this was going to become like a bigger part of the plot, and then after a while, they just realized, yeah, this is kind of lame. Let's just get to the 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 more useful and interesting parts of being a ghost. You know what I think I it probably was was that that was the cool special effects that they could do right whenever they had the person going through another person or like i don't know sam going through a door it's like well uh, yeah that probably was the limit of their special effect capability at the time i actually think those special effects were good like the the scenes where essentially sam has to the scene where the, the scenes where Sam is unable to actually make physical contact with somebody, like when he's trying to beat up Carl, but he obviously can't, or when things are going through him, or he's sticking his head into the subway, like those special effects, I thought looked great. Um, yeah. The the big budget the big budget uh, ghost sequences were the ones that I just thought were just not so good. You mean the demons? Yeah, the demons, yeah. and then the time to go to heaven part. Mm-hmm. It's just wild to think that the very next year in 1991, we were going to get Terminator 2 Judgment Day with the liquid metal Terminator. Oh, yeah. my goodness. There you mm-hmm. go. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, oh, right. huge yeah, jump. They could have done better. We're not that far away from really good looking special <laughs> the effects. The technology <laughs> is there. Just the will to use it wasn't. Or the budget. Marcia, are you ready to talk about a little bit of food and drink? Yes. All right. I thought well, we determined there wasn't any. I've I've been doing some work for you, Marcy. So what? on on these episodes, as we're carrying along our tradition from our previous podcast before uh, Roadhouse Minute, we like to have a segment called the Cruise and Pit, where we get to talk about food or food and drink that you might want to pair with your movie. Um, so uh, the first part is the cruise, uh, the drink that we would put with this movie in honor of the 1986 cinematic classic cocktail. Uh, with our the last barman poet, so Marcy, I have a drink for you. I think hey. you would enjoy, based on what I know about you. We'll see how our guests feel. It's called the Drunk Ghost, and here's what it is: it's two ounces of coconut rum, one ounce of vanilla vodka, two ounces of coconut cream, and four ounces of lemon lime soda. Uh, mix everything up except for the soda in a cocktail shaker. Uh, put it in a glass. Uh, add the soda. Uh, and garnish with a ghost peep. A ghost peep. What do you think, Marcy? What is a ghost peep? Number one, like the little the little marshmallow peeps that look like ghosts. Oh, I didn't know they made those. Of course. Um, <laughs> well, I do like coconut and lime, so it kind of has a vibe of a pina colada a little bit. I think I'd like that. It does sound a little bit like that. Julia yeah. and Rick, would you like to have a drunk ghost? Yes, I think I would. Yeah, I could get I could get behind that. Yeah. Vodka's not usually my thing, but uh you said it was vanilla vodka. It's vanilla vodka plus coconut cream and, and co- coconut, coconut rum. Cream and coconut rum. Yeah, I think I would probably like that. Yeah. As far as food goes, so our pit, Marcy, why do we call the food segment the pit? Because Brad Pitt eats everything in his movies. <laughs> That's right. So okay, so you're right. I, I, it, it was hard for me to find a lot of food that I could pull from this movie or even related to this movie. The only scene where we actually see people eating is, I think, that scene with Carl and Willie where Carl angrily barges in to find out, like, why things are not going the way that he wants them to. And Willie seems to be eating some something out of a takeout container. Uh, so my question for all of you is... What's your favorite uh, Chinese food takeout order, Rick? What's your fa- what's your go to Chinese food order? Ooh, I'm a big fan of pork lo mein. Okay, hmm. yeah, Julie. What about you? Oh, teriyaki chicken. Solid choice, Marcy. What about you? I do like chicken fingers and shrimp toast. And Marcy, what about me? Uh, sesame chicken. Every time. Every time. Mm-hmm. Every time. Okay, next thing I, I want us to just consider briefly um, is our parents' corner. This is where we talk about whether we would feel comfortable watching our kids. So we've got we've got an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old as of this podcast. Um, Rick and Julia, are, do you, are you graced with any children? No. We are not. No. Okay, well, that's good. No. It's good to hear. It'll be good to hear your opinion about this as well. So 
this movie is uh, rated PG-13. Um, Common Sense Media rates it 13 and up. Uh, kids say 12 and up. Parents say 11 and up in terms of appropriateness. So, <laughs> Julia, I, what do you think about that? I think it's interesting that the kids rated it at a higher age than parents. Oh, yeah, sorry. But- did I say 11? Uh, did I? Oh, yeah. Kids say 12. Parents say 11. Yeah. Okay. I think it's because kids would find this movie, like, so boring. Yeah, I'm not sure there's much there for kids. Mm-hmm. I, Whoopi Goldberg is funny, and I think her comedy in this movie can extend to, like, a 12 or 13-year-old. I'm not sure it would extend to an 11-year-old, though. I yeah. actually think we could show this movie to our kids, Marcy, and I feel like they would completely misunderstand it in a completely hilarious way. Yeah. Like I think, I think they would watch this movie and be like, "Yeah, that movie was hilarious." <laughs> it just wouldn't even register to them that this is supposed to be some romantic fantasy. I don't know. There's so many movies from when we were younger that they're just like really out of touch, or they didn't age well, or you know, I feel like there's not, except for like the coffee naked shirt situation. There's not a lot of like things that I'm like, ooh, questionable behavior to expose your kids to. But um, I just feel like I don't I don't think they would really enjoy it very well. Like it just, you know, if I thought it was like super interesting to see that um romantic scene when I was younger, like that romantic scene is like so boring, you know, by today's standards, right? So even there, I don't feel like kids would, I mean, we were deprived when we were young. So <laughs> now they they have too much of that. Rick, I don't think we heard from you. How old were you? Do you remember when you saw Ghost for the first time? Um, so my first exposure to the movie Ghost was in a TV edit. So it was changed for all ages, all age consumption, because most of the films that I watched were in the uh, the we- afternoon weekend wasteland of TV programming. Um, I don't remember how old I was. Um, I think it usually took a, f- a handful of years for things like this to get to the screen, uh, the small screen specific- uh, specifically. So I was probably like seven or eight by the time it would have made it to broadcast. Um, but I mean... By then, like, with commercials intercut, I don't think I could make a strong argument for uh, showing it to kids. Mostly, it just it didn't hold my attention. Like, I would have changed the channel yeah. if, if this was the option and something else was playing on a different channel. Anything. I don't think I fully appreciated this movie until I was older. And I think that's the biggest thing about it, kid-wise. I don't think kids are going to get entertained by it. Yeah, I think this movie is presented as a romance. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you're going to catch a lot of teenage boys. Yeah, I think the boys that you catch with this movie are going to be the ones who are grownups who can enjoy the nuance of the romance of this movie and, you know, enjoy the comedy and the bit of action and the bit of mystery and all of the things this movie brings. Yeah. If a kid is going to watch a ghost movie, they're going to watch the 1995 Casper film. And yet this movie was staggeringly popular, right? This movie, this movie made $500 million at the box office on a a $20 million budget, but not from the kid matinee route. No, no, certainly not. (laughs) No way. Certainly not. I think this is an excellent date night movie. Yeah. I bet the people who watched Dirty Dancing as teenagers went to see this movie in the movie theater at least four times. Probably. I watched Dirty Dancing as a child, like as a child child. So I'm pretty sure I don't remember when I saw this movie, but I'm pretty sure it was when it came out on video Hmm. in like 1991 when I was 10. I would love to talk just a little bit about sort of the the music in this movie um, in our cinema jukebox segment. So both the the score and the soundtrack, because I feel like those are also two of the things that people remember a lot, like the hook from this movie. 
at least from a song standpoint, like the big hook from this movie is obviously that unchained melody um, by the Righteous Brothers. Like, I feel like if anything, that is what people remember more about this movie than, uh, than maybe even what happens in the movie itself. It's just like, whenever I hear that song, I sort of think like, oh, it's the, it's from the love scene in Ghost. 100%. I it's, absolutely think of this movie when I hear Unchained Melody. It's funny too. So, so Marcy, we've watched, um, you know, when we were doing Roadhouse, the love scene in Roadhouse is These Arms of Mine from Otis Redding, which mm-hmm. is the same as the love song in the movie Dirty Dancing. Like Patrick Swayze has, like, he, he's got a playlist. It's songs like this by crooner by crooners in like the 1950s and 60s. I didn't even watch this movie, and I was I always think about it when I when I hear that song. Um, and you know, like it came up at the very beginning of the movie too. I was surprised. It's kind of like I feel like that the signature song um, usually comes towards the end. You know, so they used it in a way that was very up front and center. And then as far as the score goes, um, I also I also feel like, and maybe this is just me, I tend to be one of the few people like hanging out on score corner. I feel like I feel like the score from Ghost, like when I heard the score playing, I recognized it um almost immediately. I feel like it is one of those sort of very memorable scores from this period of time. Um, this is from a composer. Named Maurice, is it Jar or Jarre? I think it's. I think it's Jarre. He's the guy who uh, did the music for Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, I was gonna say. I really? That name. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. There, there is the connected tissue connecting <laughs> our two movies together for sure. Um, he is, and I was explaining this to Marcy. We were watching. He's an amazingly famous composer. I mean, of all the people associated with this movie, he's probably the most decorated right he's um he is sort of your your great sweeping landscape composer uh he composed a lot of the music for uh david lean he's got three oscars so he's the composer for lawrence of arabia uh dr Zhivago, passage to india those are his oscars among his uh 176 uh movie score credits mm-hmm. So he's a he's a pretty big deal. You all probably know this because you probably found all this stuff out when you were doing Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, his um, his career spans from 1957 to 2001, which is just wow, long time. That's impressive. I, I feel like I feel like the score in this movie is well done. I feel like the the tone of the score really fits well with sort of the the mystical kind of supernatural elements that you find in the movie. I like how the score didn't overwhelm the scenes. Um, I think it was very effective at pushing you emotionally in a direction that the director wanted you to go in um, without being too overbearing with it. Yeah, for sure. It it, it reminds me. So the other person that Maurice Jarre is like really closely associated with is Peter Weir, the director, Peter Weir. And if you, if you, if you listen to the score and go watch like Dead Poets Society, for example, like you hear a lot of the same, the same sort of notes in movies like that or witness movies like that, that he also did the scores for as well. At the end of these podcasts, we'd like to go to some uh, place called the Fix-It Shop, where we each sort of maybe think of one thing that we might change about this movie to make it better. Uh, and mm. so... Marcy, maybe we'll turn to you um, so we can give our guests a little bit of time to think on that. If you could change one thing about Ghost to make it better, what would you do? I think the portrayal of New York City is um, maybe a little bit rougher than I would like it to be. Um, It was hard because you don't really get a good sense of where they are in the city. It just looks bad in all the places that aren't wall street. And so I feel like, you know, they could have had dark alleys and stuff that weren't, didn't look like they were also in a war zone. Um, so I might've done something with the, the exterior placement and maybe given me a better sense about like where their 
uh, loft apartment was, um, you know, and like why they had to walk down a super scary um, side street to get from a party to their house. Like it just, I don't know. I think I would like the setting to be more played out a little bit more, get a better sense of the city. Rick, how about you? What would be one thing that you would change about Ghost to make it better? This is going to sound weird, um, but I kind of feel like they only use Sam's ability to influence the cat once to like get the scratch on Willie's face. And I think it would have been cool if... Sam's ability to interact with the cat had come back maybe like just one or two more times. All right. More cat. How about you, Julia? Yeah. I would have appreciated a little bit more indication about time passing. Mm. Uh, Especially the time after Sam's death. Yeah. Because it really does play out as if it's been days, but there's no way all of that could have taken days. What did Sam do during all of that time? I mean, it's between two and five days between someone's death and their funeral alone. So what did he do during all of that time? There's no indication of how much time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Carl is pressuring Molly to get back out into the world. Well, has it been a couple of days and that's wildly inappropriate? Or has it been six weeks or months and it's time to start... It's time to move, progress in the healing process. We just, I would have liked a little bit more information about the passage of time. Yeah. New York has seasons. Use that. (laughs) Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Show me winter. That's a really good point. I think for me, so, I mean, we talked about the special effects. I wish those sequences have been a little bit better, but I'm going to say something else. Uh, Again, I would have, I think I would have liked this movie if they had, uh, turn the romance up a little bit. I mean, I feel like if it's supposed to be a romance that we needed, it's just like we needed more connection between Sam uh, and Molly. And, and or the other thing too is, you know, I, the, the scene at the end where uh, Sam has sort of taken control of Otome Brown's body it it would have been very progressive, but I think it would have been it would have been nice if they had chosen to keep Whoopi Goldberg in that scene. Uh, I don't know that you could get away with that in 1990, um, but I feel like that would have been a much braver choice, and maybe I think it would have made the scene, you know, kind of even more poignant. In that case, they definitely um, wouldn't have been able to do the blocking where Demi Moore puts her head on Patrick Swayze's shoulder because Demi Moore and Whoopi Goldberg are the same height. Mm. So if there's going to be any sort of like head resting, like one of them is going to have to like bend awkwardly. (laughs) (laughs) I think it would have made a very interesting scene if they had showed us Whoopi in that place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It certainly would have changed. It would not have given us the, the nice cinematic cookie cutter ending that i'm sure most of the audiences were looking for i'm sure it would not have made it out of test screenings let's put it that way well anything else before we get a chance to go do you all have any any anything else about ghosts that we want to make sure that we cover before we say farewell rick julia i have a tiny nitpick okay so part of the plot is that carl needs sam's little bank notebook because there are codes in there that he needs to transfer money and he sends Willie in there to get them, and Willie almost attacks Molly. So Carl is putting Molly in danger to surreptitiously get this notebook, when all he had to do was say, hey, Molly, the bank needs that notebook back. It has private information in it. They need it back. Can you please give it to me? And she would have given it to him, no problem. Yeah. So I don't understand why he had to go in a dangerous roundabout to get that notebook. He almost walked out of it in that first scene when he was helping clear out the stuff. He had it in the shoebox and then she said, Oh, not that one. Yes. Took it back. But why, you know, like he had so many opportunities 
probably to just on the sly grab it that day. But he has to go all on all killer in on it. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, what about you? Any other thoughts about Ghost before we uh, put this one to bed? Just that, you know, it, it gave an entire generation of movie watchers completely unrealistic expectations for, you know, spinning pottery. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe this this movie was a uh, this movie was the top gun of ceramics. <laughs> like, how much did art school applications soar after people watched this movie? Well, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate you you all motivating us to make sure to include this in our Roadhouse uh, cinematic universe. Um, and it was fun to get back together with all of you. Can you, uh, Rick or Julia, can you remind us where we can hear all of the fantastic uh, content that you've already produced when your shows? Certainly. The best place to hear what we have on offer is by going to madmaxminute.com where you can find all five seasons of the Mad Max Minute covering everything from the original 1979 Mad Max all the way up through and including the 1995 Waterworld starring Kevin Costner. Uh, we are eventually going to cover Furiosa, the uh, the forthcoming movie from George Miller. So yeah, just go to madmaxminute.com. All of our social media accounts use that same username of madmaxminute. So as long as you're using those three words, you should have no trouble finding us. Very good. And thank you once again, listeners, for listening to another episode of Roadhouse Minute. Uh, Please, if you can, rate and review us on your favorite podcatching app. Come and join us on Facebook at The New Double Deuce. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at at rhminute. And you can email us at daltonsaysbenice at gmail.com. So remember, until next time, be nice. Bye now. Bye. 